0: Isn't it is another marvelous blessing this evening to be able to gather and to assemble in the way that we are in the peacefulness and the solitude of this moment and hour in which we collectively can not only do so in a collective way, but individually offer our heartfelt and sincere praise unto the God that made us and allows us to engage in these blessings and service to Him. It is true, as was mentioned earlier, that we're always so thankful for every individual that assembles and gathers with us. We do wish to be known as a friendly congregation and one in which individuals would wish for that to be their church home if they are looking for one. And certainly as we gather from time to time and are blessed with visitors, we always want them to feel that they're welcome here at Pippin. Tonight, as you look at the wall to my left, you probably appreciated even in the bulletin this morning that we were going to give some appreciation to the name of God tonight. And in so doing, I might suggest to you these opening comments that really present a continuation. It is true, isn't it, that some two weeks ago on the Sunday evening lesson, we basically then considered a lesson entitled, Knowing God. What is involved in knowing God? And at that time, we came to see, didn't we, that knowing God is vitally significant as expressed in the Bible. In fact, those who do not know Him are said to be those that will be the recipients of eternal doom and ruin in that awful, awful place known as Gehenna. But in addition to that, we learned about God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit and we appreciated various texts that highlighted the beautiful appreciation in all of that. We concluded that lesson by noticing the centerpiece of all of it was the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Tonight, as we continue that series of lessons, it seems entirely fair to ask about the name of God. Isn't it easy to conclude that when you and I know someone, we at least know their name? We at least have an understanding of that name by which they're called. Doesn't it seem fair to assume that the same is true of God? If you and I know God, surely we have to know His name. What is the name of God? Tonight, I would ask you to journey with me through the Word of God as we appreciate the nature of what is God's name. May I suggest, let's begin the lesson by highlighting the significance of the concept of name, and then once we've built that as a foundation, from that we'll springboard into then the name of God. And with that, without any further hesitation, let's develop that in the following way. The importance of name, and then with that, the importance of God's name. You might notice at the very top of this slide, the Bible leaves us without any doubt as to the significance of an individual's name. In fact, isn't it amazingly true that you and I can quickly recollect a number of instances in which individuals had their names changed by the God of heaven? In Genesis chapter 12, you and I encounter a gentleman named Abram, and we learn to appreciate him with such a great deal of respect. However, when we arrive at Genesis 17, 5, that gentleman's name was changed by God from Abram to Abraham. And you and I remember that, of course, there was a great significance attached to the character of that name. The name Abraham means father of many nations. And although at that time, Abram did not have the son of promise yet. In Genesis 21, Isaac would be born to he and Sarah. And of course, later on in Scripture, we find that lovely prophecy in which it was stated that in thy seed, Abraham, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. Genesis twenty two eighteen. 18. No wonder then when we arrive at Galatians 3, we find that utilized as the very character of the fulfillment of prophecy. That wasn't the only time though that God changed the name of an individual. Later on in the same chapter, Genesis 17, The woman known as Sarai, her name was changed to Sarah. We again remember God was the initiator of that name changed. It was for the purpose of the fact she would be known as then that mother of Isaac, the one who was in fact that son of promise. And God fulfilled His promise in that even in that older age, she brought forth a son. Maybe yet another example in Genesis 32. The closing paragraph to that chapter, wasn't it there on that occasion that one more time the man whose name was Jacob, we remember that his name was changed to Israel. Isn't it still amazing that as you and I read the thoroughness of the Old Testament and we encounter time after time the Israelites, it is of course the very descendants of that one whose name was changed to Israel. That name means one who has power with God or one who strives with God. It brings us maybe to one final example, this one in the heart of the New Testament. In Acts 13, that individual previously known as Saul, his name was that which came to be known as Paul, the one who wrote roughly half the New Testament, as you and I appreciate it by book number at least. Changing of the name, all those instances were brought about by God. And they were brought forth through the avenue of recognition of what that individual would become in the fulfillment of appropriate prophecy and promise. The highlight of that leads me to that next comment. You and I know well that even the name as it relates to you and to me, the name by which we're called, that too is expressly delivered in in Scripture. We aren't left to wonder. It's the name Christian, isn't it? Acts 11, 26, Acts 26, 28, 1 Peter 4, 16, all of them highlight that that God-given name by which the followers of Christ are to be known is Christian. There is to be no substitute, no hyphenation, attacking something else to it. It's Christian, and aren't we thankful for the simplicity, for the beauty, and for the power of that name? It is a fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah 62, verse number 2. Having said all those things, might we comment, if we've at least appreciated the value and the significance of an individual's name, what about God's name? Do you suppose it's vital? Is it important? Is it significant to know His name? Look with me at some of these verses. The Bible says a great deal about the name of God. Why don't we begin a somewhat brief consideration with these comments how valuable it is to know God's name. On the occasion in the Old Testament, when Solomon presided over that situation when the temple was being finished and when it was being dedicated, he made a pronouncement in 1 Kings 8.43 about the blessing that attaches to knowing God's name. Isn't that interesting? He didn't say anything about, at that moment at least, those that gather in that building. He pronounced a blessing by way of that statement upon those that know God's name. Look furthermore in Psalm 9 verse number 10, the text that was read in our hearing just a minute ago by Brother Greg. It was on that occasion that you notice it said that those that know God's name will trust in Him and they will experience the fullness of His blessings. Question, doesn't that suggest the immediate needfulness of knowing His name? It seems evident, doesn't it? Look at another consideration. In Psalm 5, verse number 11, one more time, a statement is made reminding us of the joyfulness that attaches to knowing God's name. In Psalm 119, verse 55, one more time, the joy as well as the blessing that goes with knowing God's name. I'd submit that even if we had no more verses to consider, these alone would be enough to remind us of the value of knowing the name of God. It is with those in mind I would ask you to recollect Exodus 20 verse 7. Among the Ten Commandments, the third one read like this, "...Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain." For the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. And you and I have learned from the time of our youth to appreciate that we must never, ever irreverently, flippantly, or inappropriately employ the name of God. Doesn't that highlight the significance it attaches to his name? Maybe one final thought. You and I even remember in the New Testament, our blessed Savior Himself, as He in fact set forth that which often is recollected as the model prayer, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. At the very outset of that prayer, the Lord appreciated the fact of making appropriate hallowedness, appropriate holiness, appropriate respectfulness to God's name. Oh, if only our world had a deeper appreciation and a heightened pursuit of the specialness of God's name. As you can see near the bottom of that slide, I think it's intriguing that in Hebrews 2 verse 12, there nestled near the beginning of that book of Hebrews is a statement that in the midst of the church, that which is you and me is a statement in which we shall sing about God's name we often do that in our songs, don't we? We lift high His name, the character of His being, and that for which He stands. God's name is very essential, isn't it? No wonder as we close that slide, we're in position to ask, so what is His name? If it's so important to know it, if trust in God comes along with it, if blessings and fruition and appreciation in life follow it, what is it? Wouldn't you like to know His name? As we turn the slide over to the next one, I'm going to ask that we turn our attention to a text in which God told us what His name is. Please turn with me to Exodus chapter number 3. Found near the beginning of that book of Exodus, we encounter the following remarkable saga. You remember the scene with me well. The children of Israel at that time were still in Egyptian bondage. But God had in mind to call a specific individual, namely Moses, such that he would be the one to lead the people out of bondage. You'll remember that there was a burning bush. As Moses had fled from that place in Egypt, he came to Midian. And there he was on the backside of Midian as he tended the flock. It was on that occasion, this bush caught fire and it burned, but the bush was not consumed. And Moses, needless to say, was startled by this. He even made the decision, I'll turn aside to look at the bush, how it's not consumed. It is at that point that a conversation ensued. God, in fact, reminded him, the ground on which you stand is holy ground, take the shoes off thy feet. In light of that which follows, you'll remember not to read all the verses in between. But an amazing commission was given. Let me ask you to pick up as we begin reading in verse number 11. Exodus chapter 3, verse number 11. And Moses said unto God, Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? I'll stop and make some comments along the way. But you'll notice after God had commissioned Moses, Moses, I want you to be the instrument by which my people shall be freed, for I have heard their groaning, I've heard their cries. Moses first reply, Who am I? Moses did not feel appropriate to be the one to go. He felt a bit unqualified. He felt a bit inadequate. Note the next verse. And he said, that's God. And he said, Surely I will be with thee, and this shall be a token unto thee that I have sent thee. When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, ye shall serve God upon this mountain. The very mountain upon which Moses then stood. God made a promise to him, Once you have brought the people out of Egypt. And notice God didn't say, If you do. He said, When you do, you will worship with them on this mountain. A great statement of confidence and assurance. Verse number 13, Moses said unto God, Behold, when I am come unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers hath sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? Here's a perfect passage in which we now have Moses saying, When I go to these people these who are your people, these who are slaves in Egypt, and I tell them the God of your fathers has sent me, they're going to say, what is his name? What is his name? Verse 13 closes by saying, what shall I say unto them? This is the ideal time for God then to reveal what his name is. I know we're all itching to consider the next verse. Exodus chapter 3, verse number 14. And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. And God said moreover unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob hath sent me unto you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial unto all generations. In the very passage before you and before me this evening, God has said what His name is. Let's in fact build some considerations as follows. At the outset, some of that which we now see may be a bit on the unfamiliar side to us, but nonetheless it's such faith-building material. What is His name? Y-H-W-H we now at least might give some quick thought to some elements of the actual Hebrew language. The Old Testament, as you and I remember, in the main was written in Hebrew. And we remember that Hebrew language had some very interesting characteristics, not all of which are, are borrowed by our English language. You may notice, for example, that if you ever have the opportunity to look at a Jewish Bible or one which presents the Hebrew version of the Old Testament... You'll notice that that which is presented are strings of consonants. There are no vowels in it. You and I know in English that we depend on the vowels to aid us in pronunciation. That's what dictates the syllables in a word, isn't it? We look for A and E and I and O and U and sometimes Y. But you'll notice in Hebrew one cannot rely upon the vowels for they are not present as it's written. Now, they are there as it's spoken, but not as it's written. You'll notice then that we encounter in the passage before us, God said, My name is YHWH. Isn't that interesting? In fact, that is by far the most commonly occurring way that God refers to Himself. 6,828 times in the Old Testament alone, God refers to Himself that way. 6,828 times. The next closest reference is not anywhere near that much in number. It's even less than 2,000. Surely then, as you and I give thought to this YHWH, what is this word? What does it signify? What is His name? You may notice that sometimes that string of four letters, as it relates at least to the reference in God, is known as the Tetragrammaton. That's a fancy-sounding word. It is nothing any more special than this. It's those four letters in that order in reference to God. And there has been much written over the centuries about the significance of them and the character of them and the way in which one should always properly respect them. YHWH. May I ask you to notice that in the ancient era, we, you and I remember well that the ancient Jews had a great respect for God and for His Word. They copied it meticulously. They made care not to make any mistakes as they copied it as much as possible. We might now ask this question. When one of those ancient scribes arrived in the text to YHWH, what would they do? Well, I've tried to make a comment. They had such developed respect for God's Word, they never ever wanted His name to be taken flippantly, to be taken irreverently, to be taken in a way in which it could be considered as vain, for they knew the powerful danger of Exodus 20, verse 7. And so this is what they did. Those scribes chose to write it differently. Rather than put Y-H-W-H as one would read along in it, they did the following. They inserted particular vowels that in fact changed it in such a way that it would never ever be mispronounced. For they wanted to ensure that that would never happen. What vowels did they insert? They inserted the vowels from the word Lord, at least in, in, in Hebrew. It's Adonai. And sometimes you'll notice that that is, of course, what appears to our day. It's the word Jehovah. And sometimes as that appreciation for God is given, you might notice the way it developed. Take YHWH, but then insert the vowels from a different word, the word Adonai, the word Lord. You might readily appreciate that that word Jehovah, then, as a reference to God, is not one that Jews look upon with favor. For basically, it comes about as a result of twisting that word YHWH and inserting into it what was never there. You and I, though, often appreciate then that Jehovah, as we've seen to this point, would not be recognized as the most basic of the names of God. Exodus 3 verse 14 said, I am, and that's YHWH. Look furthermore with me. You'll notice that I've given you a year reference there near the bottom of that slide. That word Jehovah that I mentioned previously coming about as insertion of appropriate vowels, that didn't come about until basically the year 1518. Far, far after the Old Testament was fully completed and finished. May I submit to you, it appears based on the original Hebrew, that that word Jehovah is not a good match to YHWH. In fact, those I'm told who are linguists would say it's an impossibility. We need to look further. What would then be a better name as God would have given us His name in this passage? Y-H-W-H. You'll notice at the bottom. What if we then look at that word again, Y-H-W-H, and ask, so how would a Hebrew have pronounced it? Again, we've learned that although no consonants were there, or rather no vowels were there, how would a Hebrew have pronounced it? I'm told that at the very bottom of that slide is the English way of spelling what likely they would have pronounced. Put an A in the first syllable and an E in the second one. Yahweh. You'll notice some write it with an additional A in the middle of the word. Let me just ask that I use Yahweh for the remainder of this lesson it appears that is much, much closer to the answer to the question, what is His name? Yahweh. That's God's name. What does it mean? What's the significance of the beauty and the wonder of that name, Yahweh? Well, let's use the next slide to develop it. Notice here, God gave us something about what His name is. He said, my name is Yahweh. Isn't that amazing that here God responded to Moses' question and said, when they ask what's his name, here's what you tell them. This is his name. With that in mind, look at some of the features in which you and I can appreciate then the appearance of that word. As you're reading through the King James Version of the Bible, you will nowhere find the letters YHWH. They're not there. Rather, the translators chose to insert something different. Let me ask you to notice for just a moment the opening verse of the 110th psalm. The opening verse of Psalm number 110. I chose this one especially for the following reason. It highlights two important considerations. This singular singular verse is one which interestingly is quoted in the New Testament. But this verse reads as follows. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. And as you read that, what do you notice about the word Lord? It occurs twice. Is it spelled exactly the same? It's clear there's a major difference. You'll notice the first one is in all capital letters. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. The second one is capital L, then lowercase O-R-N-D, correct? If you're reading again in the King James translation. Let me invite you to notice the first occurrence in that verse, the one with all capital letters in Hebrew is Y-H-W-H. The translators, when they encountered YHWH, wrote capital L-O-R-D. And that, as you and I read, it should be a powerful reminder. That is God's name in Hebrew, Yahweh. And so in that verse, it says, Yahweh said unto my Lord. And that word Lord, again, is a different word in Hebrew. That's the Adonai that you and I noted earlier. Yahweh said unto my Lord. Yahweh. That's His name. With regard to that name, that occurrence, that appreciation, I'm sure that the wonderment now leads us back to Exodus chapter 3. What does that name mean? So often names in the Old Testament as you and I noted with Abraham, that meant father of many nations. And Jacob's name again had reference to one who strives and has power with God. What does Yahweh mean? Maybe that speaks so much to things that you and I, as Christians and as lovers of God, would appreciate and wish to ever keep in mind. Let's begin back in that question. Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. God said to Moses, I am that I am. Maybe that alone speaks volumes about what YHWH means I am. I would ask you to consider some of it in the following regard. You and I know that our existence as human beings is not eternal in the backward sense of time. There was a time you and I had our beginning. Now we will live forever, but there was a specific moment when you and I had our existence at its outset. Notice that God's name means I am. He has always been, He is right now, and He will always be I am. Rene Descartes, an ancient philosopher, once made the statement, I think, therefore I am. Notice God's existence does not depend on any tangible thing like that. He is, plain and simple, He is. The very first pronouncement in all the Bible in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Although the tangible universe in which you and I now exist, it came about by creative activity that was not true of God. He's always been. He is. And His name reminds us of that truth. I am. Notice furthermore in Psalm 90 verse number 2. We have a reminder on that occasion that from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. He is the self-existent one. His existence does not depend on anyone or anything outside of Himself. Now, our universe's existence does depend on Him. Without Him, there would never have been a universe. There would never be a you or a me. But God's existence is the absolute basis upon which everything else rests. He's the self-existent one. I am. Not only that, you'll notice... He's the self-sufficient one. As we've noted earlier, your existence and mine is dependent upon that which relates to something that others have done. But that isn't true of God. He is fully self-existent and fully self-sufficient. I am, His name tells us that. Yahweh, what is His name? I would ask you to notice In Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10, there in the midst of that book of Isaiah, we have again a reminder that there is none like me. On that occasion, the people of Israel had fallen into the production of idols and they had even begun to worship them. And God reminded them there is none, no matter what, form or variety, like me. He stands absolutely unique. That oneness, that beauty, that Yahweh brings us to John chapter 1 verse 1. Maybe one of the most familiar scenes in the opening parts of the book of John. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God and the Word was God. The same was with God in the beginning and without Him was not anything made that was made. That does remind us so easily of that opening statement in Genesis, doesn't it? Yahweh is His name. Self-existent, self-sufficient. Surely in light of all those things, you can begin to appreciate then that quickly after making mention of the name in Exodus 3.14, verse number 15 attaches that name to his actions. Notice again the wording. And God said moreover unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, The Lord God of of your fathers... The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob hath sent me unto you. This is my name forever. What's his name? I am. And he said, that's my name forever. It seems to me our translators perhaps did not do us the greatest of favors to put capital L-O-R-D everywhere. It should have been Y-H-W-H. That's his name. And when we think of Yahweh and we appreciate the power and majesty of that name, remember the promises, those that know that name receive all those blessings that God has promised and they are able to trust in Him because of that name, I am. You'll notice with me at the bottom of that slide, there's a pronouncement here of the unchanging character of it. That, He said, is my name forever. It's never going to be changed. It's never going to have particular additions placed with it. That is my name forever. Isn't it beautiful to read in the midst of verse 15? That statement that God says, I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Now those individuals lived much earlier than the time of Moses. Moses. We find here that God made respect of this fact of I am means He can rule and reign over all individuals with great power and might. Whether they live now or a hundred years in the past or, yea, a thousand years in the future, you and I can trust in a God that's constant, a God that's faithful. Didn't Paul frequently make mention of that attribute of God? God is faithful. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, Who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation also provide a way of escape. Can't we be thankful for the faithfulness of God? He's always true to His nature. He's always true to His character. And He's always true to that which is His will with respect to you and me. Yahweh is His name. As you close that slide with me, it perhaps leads us to some more thoughts and even additional considerations. What is His name? We've learned so far about Yahweh. But I'm sure you're perhaps wondering, what about some of those other names that you and I have often noted are sometimes utilized to refer to Him? Yahweh isn't the only one. Surely it's the most occurring one. And with that, there's come a great deal of realization by you and by me tonight. But look at these additional ones. Maybe you have heard of songs that make reference to El Shaddai. I know many years ago there was a song that that often and very beautifully made reference to the great El Shaddai. That's another reference that sometimes can be used in reference to God. It doesn't occur all that often. But you'll notice it means the overpowering strength. Our God is such that His arm can bring about that which is His will, Jeremiah 32, 17. Didn't Jesus Himself say in Matthew 19, 26, With God all things are possible. Paul closed the Philippian letter in Philippians four thirteen by saying, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. This might be the perfect time to make a statement of interjection. That text makes reference to the the Christ. Take a journey with me briefly into the closing verses of John chapter 8. Jesus on that occasion was involved in discussion with some Jews. They did not appreciate His message. In fact, they openly opposed Him to the point where they ultimately took Him to a cross. But on that occasion, the Lord entered into discussion with them. And in that discussion, Abraham was mentioned. Jesus... As He made statement of Abraham, the Jews became very angry, very agitated. In fact, they asked, how can you have known Abraham? You are far younger than he. There's no way you could have known him. Jesus then made this statement in verse 58 and 59. Before Abraham was, I am. Can you just hear the power now in that? Back in Exodus chapter 3, we notice... God said, My name is I am, Yahweh. And then in John 8, verses 58 and 59, Jesus said, Before Abraham was, I am. He has always been. He is again the second member of the Godhead. And in so doing, we appreciate he too has the attributes of Yahweh, I am. No wonder in light of that, we now come to another word that is sometimes used in reference to God, Elohim, E-L-O-H-I-M. Even though we'll develop it more in just a moment, I might ask you to notice the first two letters of both of them are the same, E-L in English. Look at what Elohim means. It's connected with the thought of reverence and fear. And surely God demands that appropriately of all of those that would be His servants. Aren't we told in Ecclesiastes 12 that the greatest duty of man, in fact, the only duty ultimately is this, to fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Surely then God's name should evoke reverence, and it should evoke fear within you and within me. Elohim carries that thought and that idea. Notice yet a third one, Adonai. I mentioned that earlier in the lesson tonight. It means Lord. When you and I then see the word Lord with lowercase l-o-r-d, that again is just a reference to Lord in essence, Master. And as Christians, you and I know well that we are His servants and Jesus is our Master. He is Lord of all, to borrow the wording of Acts 10 verse 38. Maybe in light of those things, we come to two more. Maybe this fourth one is the most unfamiliar of the group. And I certainly make no claim to being able to pronounce it properly in Hebrew. Zeboat, perhaps. But the thought is this. There are a few occasions in the Old Testament we encounter a word like that in Hebrew. And ultimately it means the God of the armies of Israel. And it has the thought of the great majesty and the overpowering greatness attached to God's control of all things. Isn't it amazing how many things we see in all of these names? Finally, sometimes you'll notice that God is the way you and I so frequently refer to Him. That's a development from the word E-L. -El. And many times in the Old Testament we perhaps encounter words that have E-L as a part of that word. And I don't mean just words like El Shaddai. Think about, for instance, some of the cities of the Old Testament like Bethel. Sometimes we pronounce it Bethel, B-E-T-H-E-L. Many times it's mentioned in Genesis, mentioned many times later even in Joshua and the Kings. What does Bethel mean? It means the house of God. El is God, Beth is house, house of God. And so that word was frequently utilized to respect the residence and the greatness of the house of God. When you and I then give thought to, what is His name? Yahweh is His name. How great it is to let that word roll off your lips and mine. And with it, why don't we close our lesson like this. We've tried to highlight the name of God. We've revisited the text in Exodus chapter 3 and where we have seen God answer the question, what is my name? My name is Yahweh. And we've concluded that that name in that context referred to that self-existent, self-sufficient being, the one to whom you and I should give the greatest of our allegiance, the one whose development we have seen in that same chapter comes with blessing and comes with fruition. Remember in Psalm 9 verse 10, those that know His name are those that can trust in Him. Do you trust in Yahweh tonight? Yahweh has spoken, and this word is what He said. Have you believed it? Have you repented of your sins and put your trust and confidence in all that it says? Have you, in fact, confessed His name before others and been baptized? If you have, then you understand what a great change took place in your life. May you live faithfully until death, Revelation 2 verse 10. But if you have never yet put on the name of the Master, why not let tonight be the night? Why not give your open life in response to that invitation of the gospel? And why not give full assurance to Yahweh, His name? If we could pray for an erring child of God tonight, one who has strayed from faithfulness, don't you want to come back and put trust in His name? His name will be lifted so high on that day of judgment. Why don't we close our lesson with a grandeur of a passage reminding us of that name? Philippians chapter 2 beginning in verse number 5. As Paul wrote that Philippian letter, he highlighted the greatness of name and he said it like this. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. His name is Yahweh, and if you'd like to become a child of God tonight and give proper respect to that name, we would invite you to come and do so at once while together we stand and while we sing.